welcome to The Swerve Effect. I am your host, Kayla Hargett, and I welcome you and your ear holes to another episode. Okay, so this is a place where I sit down and I get to talk to people about their swerve. And what I really love about these conversations is that it allows us to just sit back and really truly hear each other out to understand the reason, the excitement, the true why behind why someone chooses to take a certain risk or follow a certain passion or live a certain lifestyle even. You also hear some stories about having to swerve around some of the challenges that life throws at us. So yeah, sure, maybe we don't always agree with someone taking that risk or living that certain lifestyle or we wouldn't handle that challenge the same way, but maybe we can gain an understanding, empathy, and respect for the individual and unique lives we all choose to live. Side note, if you're like me and you want to know how, I want specifics, how did you get through that, how did you do that, visit my website to see the episode recaps, www.theswerveeffect.com, and that's where I list all the tips, tricks, and resources the guests may have mentioned during the episode. Okay, enough about my yapping, let's get to the good stuff. Oh, it's my girl, Jenny Martin. All right. So I met Jenny at a 200-hour yoga teacher training. I was one of the coaches, and she was there to become a certified yoga instructor, and I loved her from the start. You may have heard her on 90.1 KKFI or seen her around KC promoting her new poetry book, Emotionally Bankrupt, that you can find on Amazon now. It is a book in response to resignation, addiction, heartbreak, and growth shared in the light of poetry. Jenny today has been so vulnerable and brave enough to come here and primarily talk about the addiction chapter of the book. So we get to learn about Jenny's story, and that's her story about living with and through an eating disorder and how she found self-love again. So a big round of applause. Welcome, Jenny Martin. Two. 60 second game. I don't know why I was if it was a game or not. 60 second blast off game where you have to answer the first thing that comes to mind. We have 60 seconds. Mm-hmm. Are you ready? Yep. Okay. Dogs or cats? Dogs. Unicorns or leprechauns? Unicorns. Pants or skirts? Skirts. Jelly or peanut butter? Peanut butter. So if you had to have a sandwich, which is free, straight peanut butter, not straight jelly? Well, then that's just toast. What? Right? Just sandwich bread. is a sandwich. Whatever you put in the middle. I want slap those two pieces together. Give me some fat. <laughs> uh, trees or paper? Paper. No trees. Wait, we had this question. Yeah, trick so many question times. because and your it, book is on paper. I realize you that. You're gonna kill the but trees. An what? artist has to has to make her art. So <laughs> go for the trees. Please recycle. I love trees until I need that paper <laughs> to make a dollar. Uh, coffee or tap water? Coffee. Casey or Italy? <sighs> Kansas City. Boom. Hardcover or paperback? Hardcover. Okay, my podcasts are literally anyone else's. Your podcast, 100% of the time. Obviously. Well done. That's the end of the interview. <laughs> you may go now. <laughs> Thanks for coming. I'm like, happy to be yay, here. Great. Um, okay, so I'm actually going to start off by reading a poem from your book. Yeah. It's called Reflections. And maybe I don't read it as well. You see, you do. Or you would at a book reading. But... So it's Reflections. It says, I didn't starve myself to disappear, but to be noticed. I thought being small meant being wanted. I didn't starve myself for the fear of being large, but out of fear of being average. I wanted them to point and say, she's got it. 
I starved myself, not because I was deprived, but because I wasn't enough. At least that's what I told myself. I starved myself out of attention, out of worry and rebellion, because if I could control what goes in, I could predict what went out. At least that would I, that's what I told myself. Probably not as well said as you would have said it. But does it sound like differently yeah. hearing it back than when you wrote it? Very differently. And that's the first thing my friends who come to my readings say is, wow, that's yeah. so, I wouldn't have put it that way. But when you read it, it's like hearing it again for the first time. Yeah. Um, it's interesting having you read something I wrote out loud. I don't think anyone's ever done that. So <laughs> thank you for kind of like, you know, it's called reflections, but you really just put a mirror on a big part of my life, which yeah. was my phase of anorexia. Mm -hmm. So how much of that poem and that struggle have to do with being a competitive swimmer? Because my anorexia manifested while I was a competitive swimmer, uh, a lot of it does parallel in terms of the attention aspect. Yeah. I was such a competitive swimmer since the age of eight. I was undefeated on my country club swim league up wow. until I was about, I think, 17. I was, I would go in in the summers, kick butt, uh, <laughs> and then I, you know, then I swam more competitively and swam against uh girls from all around the nation so I could check myself <laughs> but, but because I I grew up with this you know you're so talented you're you're always going to go get first you're always improving when I started to kind of come down from swimming and get burned out it was like okay what what can I be good at now what can what can I draw attention towards me now and my going into my disease was kind of like well just get skinnier just start to disappear people will notice you will get attention if it's negative or positive people are going to see you as thinner therefore they'll see you as more beautiful and to me at that time was a huge asset of of worth is being seen as as, as skinny and pretty and what we consider beautiful so i was really attaining trying to obtain this in this perfect body image that does not exist <laughs> even yeah. in my mind it did not exist yeah and I think the that the line that says I wanted them to point and say she's got it yeah. that is talking to the disease to anorexia and there were a lot of murmurs going on by my senior year of high school and then in, while I was a swimmer in college of you know people would come up to me and be like how much do you weigh what? Yeah, in my swim team, my some of my male teammates would would ask me like when we were drinking, like Jenny, how much do you weigh? What size do you wear? In what like was this a group conversation, or they no, just was pointing I, you out? I think this guy was uh, concerned for me. We were pretty good friends, and he just yeah, I think it was out of concern. But but in my mind, like that was a sign, like I was on track. Like okay, I. I am getting so thin that people are worried about me. And in, in, in like in a disease, uh, like uh, lens, yeah. the lens of a disease, that's a good thing, which is really twisted. When you have that thought of like anorexia in your mind, I'm not mm -hmm. going to eat, does that word even pop up in your head when you initially have those thoughts and like, oh gosh, there's a negative thing attached to that? Or it's really just about being skinny and you kind of take that negative context out of it and just focus and justify yourself on that level does that mm -hmm. make sense 
I'm trying to grab that, um, just trying to put myself back into like my 19 year old self. I knew I had a problem. I knew that I was con restricting and controlling food. And at that time, I didn't see that as a negative because I was still eating food. And I hadn't started to throw up at this point. I never perched. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that was so grotesque. That was a real serious problem. Is mm -hmm. if I started would to start to purge, then maybe I should ask somebody. But when people would ask me, you know, how much do you weigh? Initially it was like a defense, like, excuse you, and then it was kind of like a, a out of flattery almost like, oh, they must be concerned about me. That means they probably think I'm skinny. And then in my anorexic mind, skinny equates to perfect or, you know, good enough. So how long did it take you to realize that it was something that was negative or harmful to yourself? Or, or maybe I should ask first, how much time had gone by where you didn't see it that way at all? There was my senior year, I got under 120. And this was after um, my wisdom teeth were pulled and I had chubby cheeks for a month. So I was on a liquid diet and I realized like, oh, I'm, I've never been, I haven't been this light since I was a preteen. This is, mm -hmm. this is kind of weird, but kind of good. It wasn't until my sophomore year of college, the summer going into my sophomore year, I should say, where you know, my coaches weren't on me. I was at home. I could be around in a swimsuit my whole week. And, and by being in limited amount of clothing, it was kind of like, a, okay, a check. I don't, I'm not going to eat because I'm already in a swimsuit. Why would I eat too much? I'd feel bloated. So that, in that period, I had, I remember specifically working as a lifeguard all day and coming home and eating carrot sticks for dinner and my parents didn't ask me, you know, have you eaten yet today? And to me, I thought that as like a pass, like I mm. did it. Like I just ate 40 calories for my dinner. Like that, that's like, it was almost like a good feeling. And then immediately it was a, oh crap. I, I had to check myself and then I got, and then I had this big fear of what if my parents find out I just had carrots for dinner. And that's when I kind of was starting to see this as maybe this is an issue. Like I keep shaving off a hundred calories every day. Like I can't just not eat. So it, it, even though I knew I was in a hole, it was kind of like, a, okay, how, how long can I sustain it? Mm -hmm. And the answer was I didn't and you can't. Is there some other voice that you hear during all of this besides your own to where it, it kind of shifts from being a choice, something that you're consciously deciding to do, and then something that just seems normal or even out of your control. So the voices I heard most the time of my anorexic period was, don't get fat. Oh. It was so heavily focused on not gaining weight and staying as small as possible. But in terms of like inadequacy, of like you're not good enough, those didn't come until I started overeating. But when I was in my restrictive phase, it was just like, I was thinking about food 
every minute of the day. Mm-hmm. Even if I wasn't eating food, I was thinking about food. I was thinking about my next meal. I was writing down every calorie I ate. Every notebook I had in college was lined in numbers on the sidebars. I was constantly monitoring what I was putting in my body. Uh, so yeah, those voices were just like, okay, where are you at today? How, when are you, what are you going to end at? And if you have like a thousand calories to eat, then I would probably binge and I would, I would just eat sugar. Mm-hmm. Um, even, even when I was anorexic, I would still have these, uh, sugar, sugar binges. Mm-hmm. And a nutritionist told me, well, that's because you're not eating any carbs. I would eat like egg whites for breakfast, a salad and chicken for both lunch and dinner. And then, you know, once a week, I would just go ham <laughs> at all the desserts and cookies at our uh, cafe. So it was, it, my mind was all around food. It was all around food. Do you think a lot of athletes gear towards that same, because um, there's different things that you can, you know, focus your attention on after you have ended, like, your swimming career. So I, now I want to be good at this, and I'm going to mm-hmm. start running instead. Mm-hmm. How much of it, based on, like, the competitive side and the athletic side, do you think a lot of women go through this? Is it because of that really strict performance plan that you guys are so used to and keeping regimented? I think it's based on the individual, because um, I'll see women who kind of tend to go this anorexic or restricting mm-hmm. period having not been in sports in college mm-hmm. but find that after they graduate because it's kind of like a control and then this I need to look good for x or I need to look good for this photo or this wedding or this yeah. Instagram post uh at, for athletes at least in my network my friends have definitely found their their niche either if it's in running half marathons or doing etc they they have a maybe not the best relationship with their body Mm -hmm. but I think from being an athlete we know what our bodies are capable of and we know that we can put our bodies through a lot so as someone who's struggling with an eating disorder I would all I even to this day whenever something is really hard I just think back to my swimming days. I mean, nothing would be harder mm-hmm. than getting up at 4 a.m. and <laughs> swimming, you know, six miles. Uh, so if, if you have that mentality to lose weight after graduating or after finishing up your swimming career, then you could very potentially go down that hole mm-hmm. of, okay, I want to lose weight. I want to be in bikini competitions. I want to do all of these things so I can learn look a certain way. And sometimes it... Post-graduation can be easier for people if, if, you know, they have their one job and then they focus everything else on, on weight loss. Yeah. Um, but I think I'm tr- and I, for me anyways, I'm trying to, you know, it's hard, I think, for some people to understand mm-hmm. like that mindset. Mm-hmm. This Like, it's one thing to decide, okay, I'm going to lose some weight and get into shape and all of that. But yeah, it seems like such an on? easy decision. Mm-hmm. Like, oh. okay, I'm going to... Yes. To be, I mean, yes. do, do you say, okay, I'm going to become, yes. you know, anorexic? Jenny was like, this, this, the day I decided to cut out junk food and start running more, I just was like, all right, waking up again. And like, the first thing I would do is lift up my shirt. I'm like, oh, my abs are coming in. And I was on that train. And even mm-hmm. in the last five years, I'm like, how can I not just go back to 17 year old mindsets of mm-hmm. like, this is what you're going to eat today. This is how many calories you're going to eat. And you're going to go on track to lose this amount of weight. But with being 17 and never having to think about food, 
weight loss before Mm -hmm. it was such a new perspective that and because I was I mean I was a swimmer I was I I had friends from high school but like in while I was a teenager I was pretty weird and swimming was my life Mm -hmm. so because I can like put my mindset on competition in the pool it was the same thing with food Mm -hmm. I just put a goal down and I put my head down and I complete it would you hear any thought to eat more you know, like these these carrots for dinner are not enough. You know, feel any sense of like guilt after that? Were you struggling in your mind for what like, your body naturally needed? Mm-hmm. So when I was started that thirty pound weight loss, it was benign and healthy. I really do think it was. Yeah. Because I just, I mean, I was eating like a whole sleeve of Oreos every afternoon, and I cut that out, and I just started losing weight. But then it hit the point where I was like, you know hitting to under 120 as a 5'7 athlete where my coaches got involved. Mm -hmm. And that's when I had some cognitive dissonance of am I doing what's right for my sport or am I just being narcissistic and trying to look good in a miniskirt? And so that's when the voices came. A lot of other stressors that were in my life was just this big transition I was about to embark on of of going to college, which I, I couldn't get... I couldn't wait. I had a great college experience, and but I have a perspective. I have a positive perspective on everything. <laughs> now what I'm thinking about, I was like, no, like you were really suffering in college. But um, I think just that. Okay, I don't know what's next. I don't know what what who I'm gonna meet. Like what my team's gonna be like. If I'm gonna be able to pass my grades, those thoughts definitely played into the restriction because all those thoughts are on topics I could not control so it just goes back to like what can I control and that is is what I know what I put in my mouth like I can control what comes in I could predict what came out and that was the only thing I knew at as as, at 17 like had no money no, no no plans besides college what else can I like have a grasp on right well, I think any addiction, like on any level, whether it's alcohol or shopping or even the ones that seem like they're healthy at first, exercise mm-hmm. or I'm going to cut out fat, you know, at first they, maybe they are healthy that you're cutting out fat and you're exercising and it's something that you're, you know, you're just keeping an eye on. Um, but then there's that fine line between that and when it shifts into an obsession and an addiction, like something that's bigger than you and when it starts to harm you like physically and mentally and like relationships, was it just that one day where your coach had said something that pushed you to start to think from that day forward okay I'm going to start shifting this or did you still feel in that moment like no I've got the willpower I've got this under control he's concerned but I'm good Uh, it happened multiple times it happened with my high school coach it Mm. happened with my college coaches and my freshman year I had a senior on the team like kind of pull me aside like and she was really sweet about it. And this is a, there's many different ways that you can go about approaching someone that you you can tell is under eating. Mm-hmm. And she was just kind of like, hey, you know, like, we love you. I just hope that you're getting enough food. I know school's really stressful and, and being a student athlete is really stressful. I just hope that you're taking care of yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's all she really said. And we still to keep in touch. And that was kind of a, a light bulb, like, oh, crap, even these new, this new wave of teammates are catching on. Because mm-hmm. to them, they just knew Skinny Jenny. Okay, because I yeah. lost a bunch of weight before I went to college. I see. So they didn't really, well, some of them met me before I lost the weight at a training trip or at my recruiting 
uh, trip and they noticed they were like wow you've lost weight um it, it's a thought but are the body comments are they more harmful or helpful you know when and somebody says okay so you're looking healthy mm-hmm. does that mean i've put on too many pounds like how helpful is it for for people to come up to you and try to say those things i think it's extremely unhelpful my my parents my freshman year it was the first time i see them in college like th- two months in and my mom goes your cheeks look fuller uh, <laughs> like <laughs> well like it looks like i gotta like, trade in my four locos for a keystone light like oh. I, I guess i'm just drinking too much but i i definitely um advise against the comments mm-hmm. because everything that goes back to how you look is just going to be internalized yeah the healthy comments are, are good I that's I do feel feel good when people are like oh you're looking really healthy you're looking fit I think those are benign but if you're really c- curious or concerned about someone who's clearly losing a lot of weight it's never going to be about their body mm-hmm. it's hey how are you doing like can we do you want to talk about something and then see see what happens that's my advice does it feel, because it's, you know, from my perspective, it would be like, wait, I'm trying to validate and like verify that you know that you're looking good, like where you're you're at today. And that wouldn't come across as offensive if I just walked up and said, hey, are you okay? Because I've had, you know, I'm a thinner person and I've had people come up and just say, are you doing okay? Like, are you eating enough? And I'm just like, oh my gosh, that's, you know, would you walk up to somebody that's overweight and say you know hey Mm -hmm. you're looking fat today are you okay like you know what I mean it's just as hurtful Mm -hmm. on you know the other end of the spectrum food is just so ambiguous in terms of how to go on the right path towards recovery Mm -hmm. but keep in mind like anyone who's dealing with an addiction Mm -hmm. are hypersensitive people Mm -hmm. so the way you approach that like hey I hope you're doing okay like Mm -hmm. are you eating enough it's it's I think it's so situational and it ha- depends on the dynamic of the relationship you have, okay. have with that person. Yeah. But to just disregard all the any talk about food and just kind of try to focus on and uh, try to understand what they're going through because it's it's never going to be about the food. It's going to be you know something's happening at home or they're extremely stressed out from work or school and mm-hmm. and to understand the core of this stress or the core of this desire and need to control, then you can kind of alleviate things and work backwards. But again, to the person who's suffering or to the person who's trying to take care or just be a friend, it's gonna, it's a long process and it's Mm. never going to be a quick fix. Yeah. So you had during your college days, a a part of your year, um, one of the years was spent traveling abroad. Mm-hmm. And you went to where? I went to Firenze, Italy. Oh. What was it about? Why did you pick there? I wanted to go to Barcelona. 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 Yeah. I also said there. <laughs> Why did you go there? <laughs> because you got to flare your words when you talk about Italy. Yeah. Um, I had, it was my senior year, and I actually realized I could graduate faster with a PR degree, so I like, moved some classes around. And Italy was the only program I could take my philosophy, finish up some PR classes, and eat some good food and we always would get really wrecked on Monday nights and then I had my food class Tuesday morning 
Oh, it was like such a big, <laughs> such a great setup to my week. <laughs> were you still, when you went out there, where were you at in your phase of anorexia? I honestly, I was feeling at a good spot. Okay. My parents had mentioned that summer before I left, like, wow, you, you look really good. And I, it was my 21st birthday that summer. And I was getting like a, a lot of positive feedback, like, you look healthy. Meaning, like, mm-hmm. and and I knew I had gained maybe five to ten pounds, and I felt good. Mm-hmm. I, I was truly at peace. I could eat fried chicken and not feel bad about it. I could skip a day of working out and not feel bad about it. And then when I got to Italy, it was kind of like, all right, full-blown mode. Let's not gain weight. And I was drinking so much at night and eating kebabs at like 3 Mm a.m. And then I wasn't even hungry all day. And I'd work it all off at the gym or go on walks and runs. And I do remember eating like a rabbit during the day. I would eat like a pepper and a very small salad or just like fruit until I'd start drinking. And then I had my late night meal. So... I, there was definitely that sense of control for those first three months. And I and I would always enjoy myself on the weekends because that was when I would go out to Croatia or France. <laughs> and I know, it was such a rough life. <laughs> I know. And I just let myself, like, eat more carbs. But when I'd be in Italy, it was like, nope, nope, like, got to be back on budget, both in a calorie sense and a money-spending sense. Um, and it was super rigid when it came to food. Did you ever outwardly talk about this to friends and family? Like, oh no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna eat that because I can only have so many calories no. today. No, 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 no. So did, I had to be discreet. I kind of let people know that I was trying to be, yeah. you know, d- deficient. Looking back, would you have seen that as a sign? Is like, if if this is something that I'm not open to say to someone, it might mean that there's some. Yeah. unhealthiness to that thought mm-hmm. I mean nowadays I'm such an open book I will talk yeah. about anything and sometimes it's kind of like all right Jenny oversharing <laughs> things but back then yeah it's definitely a big sign like I was uncomfortable talking about what I ate my roommate in Italy once uh kind of was like hey what'd you eat for lunch today and I, I she had t- she took tabs on me I think the whole time we lived together oh, wow. And I was like, oh, I, I had a sandwich. And she's mm-hmm. like, okay, really? And I'm like, yeah, like, you don't, are you following me? <laughs> <laughs> this is not helping. <laughs> when did you feel, then within all that, like, the most vulnerable? Because you said you had put on, you know, a 5, 10 pounds, so maybe you're feeling better. What shifts you back and forth? What makes you feel vulnerable where you feel like to go back to that spot to really being strict, strict with your calories daily? Probably comments about my body. I... I mean, I've been an athlete since I was, I could walk, and when I get comments, I'm like, wow, you have such a rocking body, like, you you have a dream body, it was kind of like a, oh, God, do I? Is this what, like, but I don't like my body, Mm. but whatever they're saying is working, and I need to keep this up, Mm. and I need to, and and do whatever I can to obtain this for the rest of my life, like, I kind of identified myself as this skinny friend with the good body. And it was kind of, yeah, like I said, it was my identity. I didn't know who else Jenny Martin was than that hot chick. (laughs) (laughs) I was swimming. Had you been writing at this point, by the way? No, my first, I did decide when I uh, left Kansas City to go to Italy that I was going to start a travel blog and that's when I started writing. Okay, got you. Mm-hmm. Did you find during your writings at all that you were writing a little bit about the struggle 
with this or were you still at that point my writing was strictly uh talking about my travels Just the travel yeah very like rose colored but mm-hmm. i began to become more intuitive and more uh, introspective mm-hmm. about what i was seeing what i was doing who i was meeting uh so that started to open up like a deeper Jenny since, <laughs> you know, like yeah. no one's like that, <laughs> that deep and, and thoughtful at 17. And then it was like, <laughs> I started writing and I was like, oh, I'm getting places. How long did you stay out there? Did you For stay longer? Five months. Five months. Mm-hmm. Okay. God, wait, semester. how long is the semester? Like eight, August to December. Is that five? I'm not good at I don't know. Math stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so you had stayed out there for five months at the end of that five months and you were thinking, you know, it was time to go back mm-hmm. home. Was there a part of you that was avoiding going back home? Mm-hmm. Um, was this more like an escape staying? Not not that you're fully escaping, you know, mm-hmm. obviously all of it, but did you feel like it would be worse to go back home? Right. So by my last month, that restricting, just I just had to let go of it. And I started binging. For the first time in my life, like consecutively binging. Was it just as easy as a switch from when you almost kind of decided you would count your calories? Yeah, I mean, because either, you know, I'm in an anorexic brain, I'm in a binging or purging brain. My brain is around food. Yeah. So it doesn't matter. It it was just like the willpower was gone. Hmm. All the time I was trying to control food, this switch flipped where the food was controlling me. And I remember, I think I, I almost had a panic attack in, a, in my, one of my PR classes because I'm in a group with all juniors and all these girls, they live in the Northeast and they all have like just gushing money. And they're all talking about their internships they have for the summer. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I have no internships. I already quit swimming. Like, like what do I have? when I graduate who's gonna hire me who do, who am I to apply for anything and then I said no I don't need that I don't need to be a corporate cookie I am gonna keep traveling and I'm gonna keep doing this and I, I was struggling to figure out how I'm gonna sustain this incredible lifestyle yeah. <laughs> traveling Europe and that's that that nervousness of like what am I doing turned into starting to binge um, and, and like frantically trying to find a job, but I did, I did find a job and that was, that was the cruise ships. Crew. Oh, Which. I just, I <laughs> am such an old, hence my top knot, an old lady. I freaking love cruises. I found out you were Slot doing machines. cruises. <laughs> Slot machines. Yes. The wheel of fortune one. Oh my God. I can sit there for days. Like I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it so much. And when I found out you said you had been on cruise ships and you were cruise ships and I was just like. I have to know, is it like the Titanic? Like, are you sleeping in little bunk beds downstairs? Like, how many Leonardos are walking around? Yes, every day, just snag up a Leo, <laughs> say, hey, you want to go to the crew bar? It was, it. it's intense. Uh, you work there every single day until your contract is over, depending on what type of industry you're in. If you are at the bottom of the ranks, your contract's like 10 months, where you don't get to see your family or have a day off for 10 oh. months. Mine... I was in sales. I sold artwork, did the mm-hmm. art auctions. So I had a six-month contract. I, you know, lived in the same cabin as my coworkers on the same sales team. I saw the same people every day. We would go down to crew bar, get dollar drinks. 
you know, eating on the ship, buffet lifestyle. Mm-hmm. I was lucky enough where I got to go off on the ports whenever we would dock because the art gallery had to be closed due to, like, yeah. maritime law or something. It's um, kind of really annoying. Like, I hate all <laughs> of the gambling and art shuts down whenever yeah. I'm like, yeah. I want to get off the boat. I want to keep losing my money. Right, right. <laughs> so I had some definitely a lot of positive memories mm-hmm. of going paddleboarding in Aruba and just mm-hmm. having all the Mai Tais that I, my heart could desire. Um, but at the same time, you, you couldn't get drunk during your port days because you had to come back, shower, put on makeup on the sunburn you just got, and <laughs> sell art until like 9 p.m. So you were always on the clock. You were always like in the back of your mind, like what if something happened? And you're technically not supposed to be under a certain like ABV, blood, uh, blood alcohol, because if there was any type of you know accident, disaster, yeah. anything that happened with the ship, all crew staff had to start to report to like first drill. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if, if you were drunk and then all of a sudden, all right, we're going to capsize. <laughs> and that's happened before. Uh, there was like an Italian officer that totally like flipped a ship and it was a big old deal. Yeah. Yeah, it was, yeah. Oh, lordy. Yeah, so, and of course we learn about all this and everything yeah. becomes gossip. And <laughs> so how long were you, uh, how long did you work on the cruise ship then? Six months my first contract. You're, f- okay. And then you. And then I took a month off. A month off. Visited my South African boyfriend. I'm actually wearing my Cape Town t-shirt Aww, today. You do look cute. Uh-huh. Oh my God, I like that shirt and the shoes. Thank you. <laughs> I know, podcasts gotta dress up. But... <laughs> yeah, we gotta look cute behind the mic. Yeah. But it was, it was a good time. Again, like I, I'm a positive person, mm-hmm. and I just always look at the bright side of things, which that can really affect me when I don't take care of the ugly things that are happening in my life. Mm-hmm. So when I came back to the cruise ships, my second contract, I had gotten a uh, promotion, which meant more stress, mm-hmm. more pressure to sell, and a totally new cruise line, a totally new team. And it was the first time in my life where I didn't feel accepted by my coworkers who are, you know, basically the only friends you have. You can't become friends with your guests because then they leave in seven days and that's sad. So you've got to... It was sad (laughs) leaving the crew. I'm like, I love you when you write me. And they're like, bye, beautiful blonde American. (laughs) And they're like, we'll just see another one. But I, um, yeah, I I was really outcasted for the first time. And I... That was really weird to me. I get along with people, and this team um, was was just difficult. Uh, they did a lot of really weird things. Like on my birthday, they like were like, "All right, you're drinking." I'm like, "Maybe I don't want to drink." They're like, "No, you're drinking." Oh, I hate. That. And I was a party girl back then, sure, but I didn't want to drink with them. And they were pouring me tequila shots all night. I find out the next morning after puking all night that they were pouring themselves water. And giving me tequila shots. So just like little deceptive things like that really, really triggered me. And I started binging and purging. Mm. And that just started escalating more and more to the last week that I was on the cruise ship. I had binged and purged in my cabin and spiraled into a 30-minute panic attack. Mm. I hopped in the shower I was trying to like put my face in a pillow just like calm down but I was in that tiny little cabin Mm -hmm. I had this paranoia that my purge was going to completely block the entire septic tank and it all point down to me and then I would be humiliated and fired 
So I knew after I'd calmed down that I had to resign then and there, that I couldn't deal with the stress of working on a ship, of the stress of being in sales, at least in that situation, and being on a buffet diet, basically. I really, truly thought that the reason I was bulimic was because I was around a buffet, obviously. (laughs) I was like, that's my problem. (laughs) It's a lot of free fries. I love a good fry. Yeah, and 24-hour pizza and ice cream. (laughs) Is this something that you feel you're born with as far as that thought? Because I think... A lot of people don't view that, and maybe I'm, maybe not a lot of people, but I would assume some people that don't understand that and can't grasp the idea of one or the other, or like that's not a disease, that's a choice. Just eat something, just don't throw up. Mm. What would you, what would you say to those people to educate them a bit more on on that, the, the power behind those thoughts? Mm-hmm. It's absolutely a disease and that's something in my recovery when I get really upset at myself is my community will be like it's not you it's your disease like Mm -hmm. you don't have a problem you have this voice Mm -hmm. and that's nothing on you and my dad is 34 years sober and alcoholism runs in our family so we were prompted as children um by the time we were like young teenagers, my brother, who's a year younger, that, you know, dad doesn't drink because he can't just have one. And this is going to be something you probably are going to deal with. Like, so when you start to drink, just be mindful that you are susceptible to have an issue. Mm -hmm. So mine manifested in the obsession around food. And the thing with food is that you, we have to eat it to survive. And we hold on so many emotions with our meals. I mean, think about it. Like, we put so much focus on food in each holiday, mm-hmm. each graduation. Everything is like, what's gonna, what's for dinner? You yeah. know? And that could be a cultural thing in America, which it absolutely is. But I think it was, for me, a just a hodgepodge of being a competitive swimmer um, and having this, like, shiny outlook for what my family looks like. Like, my parents didn't have much, and they grew this beautiful family. And so then I was the I was the first kid to be introduced into this upper middle class. So that was kind of pressure of, like, we gave this all to you. Be mm-hmm. perfect. And to my mind, I was like, okay, I'm not getting straight A's. I'm, I can't be the fastest swimmer in the world. Like, how else can I stand out? And that's when it was like, oh, when you restrict and you become skinnier, people pay attention to you. So that's how it worked with me. And for anyone who is struggling with overeating or undereating, know that it's it's okay. Yeah, <laughs> you're really not alone. This is something millions of people struggle with. And I do. I I really think the height of these diseases are uh, are common periods. Some people will suffer for this their whole life. For me, I know my pinnacle is over. Like the depths of my disease are behind me Mm -hmm. but if I don't monitor my stress if I don't keep in touch with the people that keep me stable and sane and I don't get down on my knees and pray and just look at how much I have then I can slip and the constant reminder that I could easily just start binging and purging tonight keeps me in check Mm -hmm. and it's a it's a daily maintenance yeah 
So you would, I mean, it, it's good that you were, you had that self-awareness, that second contract and the crew is like, mm-hmm. okay, I've got, I know that this is something that's going to trigger this even more. Mm-hmm. So after you had left there, you had headed to Korea? I was in Seoul, Korea for a year. Why Korea? I like always like want to know why, why there? Why Korea? Well, my disease reasoning was that I don't like Korean food, therefore I won't binge. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, after the cruise ships, I spent a whole weekend like, okay, game plan. What's the next move? I want to keep traveling, but I can't just be on a ship. I need like a stable um, like settlement. And I knew I liked kids. I liked teaching. And I started looking up every program, everything I could do without having to go to school again to get my teaching degree. And Korea ended up being one of the most lucrative paying jobs for someone who didn't have a teaching degree. And there's so many perks, like they pay for one of my flights over there, or they pay for your uh, boarding, your apartment. Oh, wow. Um, but also, they're extremely kind people. Uh, they're the 10th largest economy in the world. Very progressive. I mean, 50 years ago, it was just dust from the war and and now it's it's just it's just insane Mm -hmm. how developed it is it's gorgeous so it after I I it kind of came on my radar I did a lot of research and then my heart was set Uh, well how I mean what was it like living out there then it just just as you think yeah like the neon lights just give you so much life they're heavy drinkers, and they're super fun. Um, and their food, they make a big deal out of food. They are very kind. But one thing that um, I must also note, mention is that they have one of the highest suicide rates in the world. Oh, they, I have no idea. Yes, they put on so much pressure on their people. They So Korea is the size of about Iowa, and there's 50 million people living holy yeah. shiz balls yes holy shiz balls and there's 10 million of them in seoul and they have like wow think think of america if you didn't get into princeton harvard or yale like <laughs> good luck you're gonna be oh. driving a school bus that's basically their structure in getting into a good job and you work at either hyundai or kia or samsung Mm. (laughs) but teachers are are very highly valued there so I did have respect I was also the heaviest I'd ever been Mm -hmm. so that was really hard for me seeing these one size fits all and their shop is insane too which I'm not a big fan of fast fashion but you could get like a five dollar t-shirt and it's like the one size fits all and I'm just like nothing like why did I come here I'm a whale but no people actually came up to me I have pretty big eyes I know you podcast listeners can see this <laughs> face but but they would like point at me and and be like oh big eyes and they'd like point at my nose they're like big nose I'm like what <laughs> no one's ever told me I have a big nose and they're like no because it's like skinny because it's long uh... and it's just like they they are uh, also very very materialistic and superficial they have the highest um they have the most surgeries in the world per capita yeah it sounds like a not awesome area for you to have been at at that <laughs> time of your not. life. Yo. I mean, did it take you a while to recognize, like, I think this is actually also doing me harm being here? Right. Because you stayed for a year. Full year, and in, after six months, um, I had a big tragic thing happen, which I can get into. But my, my friends back home were like, you need to, you need to come home. Mm-hmm. Like, you're sick. 
And to me, I if I f- didn't finish, then I had like five grand that I would be missing out on in oh, pension and severance and yeah. just a lot of things that, and I'm someone like I commit to something, I finish it. Mm-hmm. Um, so to me, that would have been a failure if I quit. So what happened was I was on a spiral of binging and purging uh, during the summer. It was about June, right before my birthday. And I just could not stop binging and purging. The second I would wake up, it was like, can you do it? How long, how long can you wait till you eat? And it was, this is, think to me, this period was full on blown heroin addiction. Mm. I was completely, um, underneath the spell of food. And what, I, do, what does that feel like? I mean, I, I can then hear and understand the thoughts, but wh- what does that feel like? It's like an ins- insatiable hunger, and nothing's going to be big enough. Like, I would order a full-size pizza and eat it all in, in you know, less than 20 minutes. Uh-huh. I And then I would have to wait an hour. I maybe purge some of it, and then thinking of like okay I have 20 bucks how can I stretch this out to get as much food as possible and it's just it's so twisted thinking Uh, it's it's just weird like thinking back to this time in my mindset because it your whole purpose is to stuff yourself with food because nothing feels good Mm -hmm. and I I know some people that I like I don't understand how they can eat half their plate and be like okay I'm good and save it for later. It's that nothing's going to be enough. I don't feel anything. And you reach that point past comfort, past full. And that's when you're like really hating yourself. And it's like you just sink in it. Mm-hmm. It's it's extremely depressing yeah. um, as I laugh. But I was in this spiral. And I started noticing uh, some some hives started to break out in my stomach. And this was Friday afternoon, and my coworker was like, oh, allergies. I'm like, what? No. (laughs) And then Saturday, some more, and I I binged all, like, my weekends, because I wasn't working, it was kind of like a, I was was afraid to wake up, because I knew what was going to happen. I was like, if I didn't have plans to go see people, or go shopping, or go on a trip, like, I knew that I was susceptible to just be in this binge. So by Monday morning, I woke up and my entire body had broken out in hives. My face had just blown up. I I didn't look my like myself, and mm-hmm. I I looked like that character from the Goonies. The, oh, the, the, what's his name? Yes, that one. I know who you're talking my about. My face was oh. just like just looked like I had just been beaten with a bat. Um, I I looked horrific, but I actually had lost my cell phone. I think. Probably drinking too much of the Koreans, but I I walked to work that day and I like showed my coworkers and they uh, were terrified and I was like clearly I can't be with my kids they'd start screaming <laughs> yeah. um, so I went to the doctors got shot up with some steroids given like hundreds of antibiotics and given basically a vegan diet he told me no eggs no f- meat and no dairy um, and that that. Point was a really big breaking point where it was like I I just had to go to the hospital and get shot up with steroids like this is not okay so taking that advice from the doctor I immediately thought oh vegan veganism is gonna save me so I start looking up vegan youtubers and I'm watching this one girl 
who is talking about her history with binging and restricting and how veganism has helped saved her. Hmm. But first she's talking about this other woman and how this woman was in a cycle of binging and purging and showed a photo of this woman all broken out in hives. And then the YouTuber is like, this woman died. And I immediately thought, if she died from looking like that and I looked just like that, that means like I, I could have taken my own life with how much stress I put it under. Wow. I mean, we've all thrown up. It's not a good feeling. So that was caused from purging. Purging. I mean, think about it. When you purge, your body just goes, it's so stressed out. Mm -hmm. It's pumping out so many hormones and acid and just all that gunk. And it's, you're just intoxicating your entire body with all these, all this shit. Yeah. And if you're doing that twice a day, your body's going to give up on you. Yeah. So I immediately was thinking, I'm taking my own life with this. Like, I, I have got to change. And that that started a big shift to wanting to really get healthy. Um, but then there was just, I still had like half a year of career left. And I that was not, unfortunately, the last time that it happened. But it did help me realize, like, Jenny, you're going to kill yourself. So, so even if, if seeing that the power of the thoughts and the emotions that you're still continuing to do this, knowing that this is something that could kill you. What are the thoughts that are still going in through your head? What, what are you feeling after or during purging? It's extremely depressing. I would just think like, maybe I want to be dead. Maybe, maybe I'm doing this because I know it's happening. Maybe subconsciously I'm killing myself on purpose. It's, it's the deepest depression I've ever been in has always been around food. I mean, I've had some heartbreaks with, with men and jobs and Mm -hmm. actual other stress that (laughs) normal people go through. And, and that's another thing is it's like, I don't under, like, I I couldn't understand why I was putting myself through this. Like, yeah, ever like normal adults already have the stress of paying their bills and relationships and, and how they're going to, find fulfillment in their life and I'm adding to this stress mm-hmm. by voluntarily putting myself through hell mm-hmm. so it took I did, I couldn't understand why I was I was doing this to myself and now as someone who's you know I can always will consider myself recovering every day is recovery for me but I think looking back looking back it was saving myself and protecting myself from what's to come. So protecting myself from men because if I was fat, then no man would love me. Mm. Or protecting myself from uh, just having better opportunities because if I was fat and in and always binging food, then like I wouldn't be susceptible to have more opportunities. I know this is backwards thinking, but when you're in disease, everything's yeah. backwards thinking. And to the end, I think I was just afraid of what was to come. So if I could just stay in one spot and turn to my food, then I'd be okay. Even with the hold that this had on you, this disease, and even after seeing that video and being terrified of it, did any of that prompt you to seek any sort of help while you were there? Absolutely. I sought out a psychiatrist who prescribed me SSRIs for the first time. Which which is? Which are antidepressants. Okay. And 
and uh, they're the blockers of all the all the fun stuff, all the serotonin. <laughs> yeah, I, I I wish I could explain this a little bit better, but I was taking antidepressants for the first time, and it felt like such a sugar coat. I had all this like crazy energy and I was like, okay, okay. I'd like wake up, take my pill and I'd be like, all right. And then I'm like, wait, no, I'm still miserable. I still want to eat. And it, 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 it could have blanketed it for a bit, but when I had come back, I'm like, no, I, this is not fixing my problem. Like I still have these obsessions around food and he just upped my dosage. Mm -hmm. And I was on some clonopin as well, which is anti-anxiety. And this is the first time in my life that I had been put on anything besides like Adderall, Ritalin, all the, all the fun college things you go through. And this is like a big deal because I knew that this type of drug wasn't like something you can take right away. It, it took time to not only build up, but it also takes time to kind of take it out of your, your life. Yeah. So that was a shock because I knew that it wasn't working. I knew it was just a, a fake fix. Mm -hmm. So that was frustrating because I felt like he wasn't listening to me. He was just sh shoving pills in me. And another thing that I sought out was a 12-step program, which is um, related to Alcoholics Anonymous. There's a 12-step program, which I actually go to now, and it's been extremely helpful and revolutionary in my process. However, when I was in Korea... I had to travel an hour into the city every Tuesday night, meet with maybe three or four other women, and there was always one of which who didn't speak any English, one that spoke both Korean and English, and then my sponsor, who was an expat with her husband, who was in the military. And when I saw her help as a sponsor, she put me on a food plan. She had me write out everything I would eat, for that day, call her and let her know what I was eating that day. And she had me get a food scale, so I'd weigh my food out. So someone coming from a restrictive background, I would kind of like see the scale and immediately be triggered and go back into those numbers and the calorie counting. And if I had, you know, four ounces extra of broccoli, I wasn't going to throw away the broccoli. And then it was like, am I binging on broccoli? Because I got to go get like a whole cake to eat. And Well, yeah, that sounds more like going back to controlling your food again, which was is the whole problem from the, the get-go. And unfortunately, there are a lot of programs that are extremely rigid and it's kind of like an all or nothing approach. But if you're struggling with addiction, everything's all or nothing approach. Yeah. I mean, we, we know about anyone trying to diet. It's like, Oh, the minute you have like a donut for breakfast, you just throw everything else away. It's like, no, you just do the next best thing. Mm -hmm. So this, this approach to recovery was extremely malicious in terms of my, my thinking and reasoning around food and I was just lying to her all the time. Wow. Or I would have like two days where I was on track and I was like, oh, I'm a new woman. And then, <laughs> and then I'd just binge even worse. And yeah. it, was, it was not healthy. Did your friends, did you tell any of your friends and family that you were working on this? Yeah, they, oh, we don't really ever talk about my parents. Like, this is, I was, in that way, I'm the black sheep. Mm -hmm. um, we don't really talk about it because it, it makes them uncomfortable. They don't understand. Yeah. My mom makes a dozen cookies, eats one, and walks away, and I have nothing related in that, like, 
type of control. Mm-hmm. Um, my Like I said, my friends, when they found out about my hives, and I would, like, shoot them a photo of that photo of me broken out in hives, they their jaws dropped and they were just like, Jenny, you need to come home. Like you are not healthy. Like you could, you could really hurt yourself. And again, I went to that stubbornness of no, I have to finish my contract. I need to get this money. And it's only six more months. Like I've already at the halfway point. Why go back now? Was it hard for you to tell your friends though? I feel like some people would feel ashamed or or embarrassed or the risk that they're not going to want to be friends with me anymore. I mean, did you have that that fear, that risk? I've never had the fear of people not wanting to be friends with me because (laughs) why would you not want to be friends with me? Um, No, I have have an amazing support group of people Mm. in my life. And it was hard because they knew me as the fit Jenny. Mm-hmm. And I guess I was embarrassed that I was I was large. And so when I finished my contract in Korea, mm-hmm. that was March 2017, my best friend from college came to visit me in Vietnam and Thailand. And we had this gorgeous resort in Thailand. And I just remember bawling because I was embarrassed for her that she had to stand around an overweight oh. person and we were in our swimsuits the whole time and I was so ashamed for how much weight I had gained and I told her how sorry I was that I couldn't enjoy our trip because I was so obsessed with my body. Yeah. Um, so that that's definitely the hardest was what I when I actually came to back to America, I visited a bunch of friends and Spent all my money going to Chicago, L.A., all over the states, and I meet like I was happy to see them, but they could tell that I was depressed. They could tell like something was off, and that my mind wasn't present. My mind was thinking about how I wish I was not as fat. Yeah, <laughs> and that was probably the hardest was that shame around my body. But they, they, they don't. I could be five hundred pounds, and they don't care. They don't care. <laughs> That's a good friend. Yeah, they are. So moving forward, you're home, you get a nine to five job, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which you're already like, Ugh. <laughs> um, there's like this nugget, this, what, what would you call this little section out of this poem? Like a verse, a little, a little nugget out of a whole poem. Oh, like a little, yeah, what are they called? a little bracket. nugget, a bracket, like something nugget. for, it's a nugget. You said, so you had, I know we had talked about this, where you had, working in the corporate world, you had found out through basically resisting that and, and being almost just emotionally, like physically ill, having to get in your car and go to work every day. And this poem kind of like speaks to that as it's, it's not you, it's me. I thought a nine to five was part of the American dream, but a woman with a wild heart can't keep a white collar clean. <laughs> I'm going to snap after that. How much did working in a nine-to-five job affect the eating disorder itself? Honestly, it was good for me. It was good for you. Stability, I have found, is good for me. Hmm. That security of knowing where my paycheck's coming from is good for me because that's kind of a control thing, right? So yeah. if, I, if I feel out of control, like I'm juggling four jobs... I'm going to feel insecure about where my money is coming from, and then I'm going to feel insecure about how I'm going to be paying for things. So at the beginning, because I'm, I'm a really diligent worker, and I signed up 
to this straw because a bunch of my friends from high school were working there and I was like okay they can do this I can do this I'm not really sure what I'm doing but they hired <laughs> me suckers yeah. and I just show up early and I put my head down so my focus is on performing well and that detracts from my obsession around food. okay however on once I realized, oh wait, I don't like this job, and oh wait, this is extremely awful and stressful. Then it was kind of like, well, I worked so hard, I guess I'm gonna go. Um, but by the time I had started that nine to five job, which was in 2017, my binging and purging and restricting had really tapered down. I'm not saying it was gone. Mm-hmm. I definitely binged and purged probably once a month. Um, and it was always the worst on the weekends because I would go out drinking and then I'd wake up super hungover and hungry and I would just spend all my Sundays just like eating takeout and not moving and watching TV. Mm -hmm. So that nine to five, the negative effects on it was all the stress that came with it and the, okay, I'm making money now, so I might as well like do what a 25 year old does and go get drunk on a Friday night and just like vegetates all weekend. Mm -hmm. So part of me, I, I felt almost normal. Like, I was like, okay, I'm not the only one doing this. Right. Everyone, everyone like, comes back to work on Monday tired and back <laughs> on their diet. And they're like, oh, I just ate so much this weekend. It's, like, cool to talk about. <laughs> um, so it kind of distracted me when I started. But overall, that's when my, my um my stress in life shifted from food to purpose. Like, Hmm. okay, I kind of have my food issues, like somewhat, um, I don't want to say taken control of, but like some, like I understand I've, I've grown so much from my history with all this eating. And then it was, okay, I'm in a nine to five that I am working my ass off. I'm not getting anywhere. No one's valuing me. I know I have so much more talent and skill to offer the world Mm -hmm. than making phone calls all day. So that's when some internal struggles shifted to why am I on this earth? Like, where can I have my voice? And that's kind of where poetry came. So you just, you had never written poetry before that either. So you're just like, I'm going to go ahead and, uh... Just gonna knock out some poetry. Yeah, my, my <laughs> first poem was so I had like you know I was working on cruise ships. I was in Korea. I was also like getting really overweight, and I didn't have time for boys. Mm-hmm. Like my my dating life was strictly after clubs. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and I did that give you this feeling? Did that ignite literally after that one poem? That something within you that was like, I think I'm gonna write poems throughout all of my journey and my struggles Mm -hmm. and and did that lead you in itself to quit your job absolutely and I didn't write poetry for a while but Mm -hmm. then I was dating this guy for about four months and he absolutely took advantage of my situation he knew that I hadn't had been in a relationship in years and Mm -hmm. he threw out the l word very early and it was just extremely manipulative it was a very toxic relationship so when that was starting to crumble, I I had that sense of, okay, it's time to turn to your keyboard, time to pick up the pen. Mm-hmm. And it just started flowing. Mm-hmm. And I, this guy then told me, um, 
after like you know when things are done but then they keep trickling in they oh, send you well, a text yeah. they they just like show up in your life again so he just really wanted to keep um, a tight hold on me until he told me that he didn't love me that he wasn't attracted to me and that he had a girlfriend and I figured and I like I had to miss work the next day. Did you title that poem Dick? <laughs> no, he actually, had, like, I have a whole sequel that is, like, halfway done. Oh, That's gotcha. about our relationship. Uh, There's a lot of cool. jokes and sex in that one, so I figured, hey, you know what? <laughs> keep that for when, like, my first book does really well, and then I can bring in yeah. the risky stuff. But I was absolutely crushed. I had to miss a day of work. I started seeing, seeing a therapist again. And started writing so much about him, and it felt good. But then, that every time I'd write about him, I had to think about him, and yeah. I wanted to get away and move away from him. So at this point, yes, the you asked this before. Like I was writing so much that when I went to my job, I just felt out of place, and mm-hmm. I felt like I needed I was I needed to be writing. So then my therapist suggested, why don't you write about work if you don't like work? And so once I decided to start making corporate poems, which is the chapter in my book, W-E-R-K, Work, that's when it became unbearable mm. to go to work because I I knew my purpose was was in poetry. Yeah. And it, of course, it's like funny because no one tells you, go pursue poetry. It's super <laughs> lucrative. Uh, but I, it's been a form of therapy yeah, for you. Mm-hmm. So, and I, would you suggest multiple different, and not as a form of distraction, but for somebody that's that's healing from this, there's the 12-step program, there's support from your friends, just to continue to search for different avenues of healing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and journaling is, is proven to help with yeah. healing because you have to look inside um, of your emotions and it's a magical act when it happens yeah. because you could come to your journal and be like, what is this? Like, this is silly. And then you just freeform. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a technique of journaling or having journaling prompts. For me with the poetry, it was really natural. I don't suggest everyone needs to go become a poet, but start with, you know, what's been bothering you. And you would see that things start to uncover like that a poem that you read first, Reflections. Like, I was bawling my eyes out writing that because mm-hmm. I realized how sick I was and how much I was crying out for help mm-hmm. when I was a young te- or an old teenager, and that that was just the beginning. How much has writing had an effect on your healing? I know it's, it's definitely a release, but how, as far as the physical side of things, how much has it affected you? It's... I'm, I would love to say, like, I feel amazing, mm-hmm. but I don't always. It's, mm-hmm. it's. I know <laughs> Halsey has said almost, like, after writing an album, like, it, she feels more sick afterwards because it's just, like, everything's out and you're left uh. with no energy. And I would write most of this book. My book, Emotionally Bankrupt, was written in a public space, and I would just be bawling. And then when I would leave, I just felt, like, unsure, like, you kind of like leave a part of you mm-hmm. in the paper and it's kind of like breaking out of your shell. And then it's like, who am I now? <laughs> like that's what, who I was, but have I grown? And then it's that doubting yourself. Like, 
Am I still doing this? Do mm-hmm. I still have these obsessive thoughts around food? Do I still have these obsessive thoughts around this one person? And the answer is yes. I'm always going to have thoughts around food and men who are bad for me. Yeah. But what's changed is not acting on those thoughts, not texting him, not going to go through a drive-through. It's seeing seeing this pain or this malicious idea and mm-hmm. waiting for it to pass and then making a decision to do something that's going to be beneficial to my health or my well-being or or just to keep going along your day. And I yeah. and what the difference is, you know, years ago I would just act on it I would restrict binge purge or go get drunk and go home with a guy and now it's like okay those are all very short-term fixes and now I've kind of grown into like what does this decision I want to make is how is that going to affect me in an hour or two hours and then that just comes down to like picking out what I'm going to eat for lunch Mm -hmm. it's like okay if I eat this, I'll feel like this. Yeah. If I eat this, I'll feel great. And then I can do everything else I wanted to do today. And it's just being a lot more tactical with how I make my decisions. And absolutely writing kind of plans that out. It's it's like a planner of your life. Mm-hmm. And it's just like showing you maybe what has been locked up inside but hasn't really come to surface yet. Yeah. And I imagine every single day is different. You know, some days are easier than others. So do you write every single day kind of a a plan for the day or? I wish. It goes in cycles. Mm -hmm. My life the last few months have been extremely hectic. I work multiple jobs right now. But there have been periods in my life where I wrote or journaled every single day, especially when I was writing Emotionally Bankrupt. I was writing one to five poems a day. Mm -hmm. So I think it it goes into just cycles. Um, But when I do write... And when I write my blog post, it kind of flows out of me. Like mm-hmm. my last blog post was after um, a yoga teacher training session we had that was really intimate and really intense, and I couldn't process it. it I was a mess after this. And for context is we put each other's hands in each other's heart. We stared at another person for two minutes, and then we did that for 20 people. So for <laughs> no. 40 minutes, we were just looking at people dead in the eye. Into their soul. We were looking into their souls, and I felt great while we were doing it, but the second I got in my car, I was bawling, because I'm mm-hmm. like, I'm fucking lonely. Like, oh. I just felt like I have nobody, and I didn't know how to deal with it, and then the next day, I was like, I have to write yeah so that was beautiful like that was the last time I wrote something and and when it flows it flows but right now no I have to make I like I have every hour like scheduled (laughs) to this day I hope things are going to change um where I do get to write more and I can focus on poetry or my blogging Mm -hmm. um and the memoir that's still in the works so Jenny today Mm -hmm. so that. That was Jenny learning and growing and and the struggles and all of that. Where are you at today in your healing? Where are you at today with your poetry, your book? So with my healing is a daily maintenance. Mm -hmm. I I mean, I'd be lying if I said I haven't overeaten. I think everyone overeats every week. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like... I wanted to get takeout last week. I worked all day, and and then I come to this, like, stopping point where it's like, Jenny, you are just, like, a Postmates of Way 
from going down a spiral. Mm. Like it's that easy and attainable to uh, just let this food obsession manifest. So Jenny today has to be super, super um, careful. Mm -hmm. I have to really make sure that I'm working out and not working out too much. Mm -hmm. I have to make sure that I'm eating healthy enough but not restricting. It's just like a daily maintenance and making sure that I'm checking in with sponsors and people who are also um, struggling with food because as much as my friends are a great support system, they don't understand. They've never thrown up food. Like they don't know what it's like to want to eat a full pizza and then eat another full pizza. Like I need to talk to people who have also gone through this pain. So that has been a major step in my healing process. In terms of my poetry, I just try to make sure I do one thing every week mm -hmm. that benefits my true vocation, which is writing and speaking. So this week I have a reading at Our Daily Nada. Oh, I yeah, saw that. I, I don't think it'll, it'll probably have already happened by the time you make this. <laughs> but yeah, I want to I wanna really focus on the Kansas City market. Yeah. I want to get my name out here. here. Um, by the fall of 2019, I want to start speaking at schools. I spoke at an all-girls high school a month ago. And I just want to keep sharing my story because I didn't have an older adult or I guess I'm not an older adult, but like a hot, young, cute adult to tell me like, <laughs> Hey, if you start restricting in high school, like these are the routes you could take. Yeah. Don't go down mine. Yeah. I want, I wish I had someone to say, Hey, like, I know it's, you think it's really good to like be a double zero for your prom dress, but if you can't sustain this lifestyle, right. it's going to either go three ways and that's you get better you start binging or you become six feet under. Yeah. And I'd imagine it's helpful for you too, just Absolutely. to continue to speak about it, just, mm -hmm. just getting it out there more and more that you're more comfortable mm -hmm. speaking about it. And does it help you, I guess, accept yeah. that and not to feel mm -hmm. that it's anything to be ashamed of, that it's a disease and that we all have our things that we go through mm -hmm. and that you should be really proud of yourself that you're – so strong to continue to work on it every day and to be aware, self-aware enough and care about and love yourself enough to want to heal yourself moving forward. Everything you just said is, to me, the blueprint towards recovery. And these support groups I go to, the 12-step meetings, it is exactly that. You're voicing um, what you're going through. And typically it's never about food. It's like, Oh, my husband or like, Oh, my boss. And that's what we talk about because nothing is about the food or the drug or whatever you're addicted to. It's that need to feel enough or feel worthy or yeah. filling that void. Um, so definitely sharing the stories and, and what you said about acceptance. The first step in any 12 step is admitting your mm -hmm. wrongs or admitting your addiction and to me, when I accept that I have this voice in my head, which some days I never hear, I'll go weeks, I don't hear it, it's beautiful. And then some days it's like, I'm terrified because all I can hear is like, you need to go and you need to just like buy all the food today. Like you're not going to see any human. You're just going to lock yourself and I'll get those days. Mm -hmm. And so I have to, I have to go on a really long walk or I have to, I have to strategize how am I going to avoid doing this and and you can't really avoid it. It only gets louder. You just have to, like, go back to your sponsor. You have to go back to 
um, the writing, the journaling. But I think I was going to ask you that is how, you know, what advice that you would have for someone who, okay, it is drive by stress, but being an adult is just stressful in itself. Mm-hmm. So how, how do you avoid mm-hmm. stress? Is it being more careful of what you do for your daily job? But what if that means that you can't follow a passion? It's just, so you would recommend then just, yeah, speaking to a sponsor, your friends, all of that. Mm-hmm. And, and meditating. I don't do this all the time, but um, with yoga and meditation and just being still and that kind of like mind game of we're so prompted to be completing a million things in one day and then to sit your butt down mm-hmm. and not do anything for 10 minutes is so painful mm-hmm. but then when you're, you do it you're like you know what the world is going to keep going on even yeah. though I haven't done anything for 10 minutes so Playing with meditation, um, you know, yoga is a big part of my weekly practice. And I'd say just keeping myself in check. Like, not being too focused on what I've eaten, but thinking like, hmm, let's see, everything you ate yesterday was like brown. (laughs) So it was just like carbs on carbs. So maybe put in, like maybe try to have a salad today, but not beat myself up and just forgive myself. And have a meal be a meal and nothing more because it really is just energy for your body. And yeah. I try to not make things so concentrated about food, which is hard, but that's life. Yeah. It's going to be hard. How important could you stress that forgiving yourself is is part of your healing? It, it's paramount. Mm-hmm. Forgiveness is one of the pillars of recovery because if you can never move past that cookie you ate yesterday like you're not going to be able to be present in how to make the right decision for today another thing about um, acceptance is not just accepting yourself and your body but accepting all bodies Mm -hmm. and I think that's really helped with the judgment I hold around myself and then the judgment I hold around people that I'm like, oh my God, she's so skinnier. Wow, like these people are huge. Like we live in a country where a third of our population is overweight Mm -hmm. and we have so much stigma around like people who are severely underweight and overweight. And if you just see them as people and not as bodies, then you can accept yourself and your body a lot easier. Yeah, and you've done like such a great job, I think expressing like, that and and just this whole journey through your book emotionally bankrupt which is being sold it's being sold what? on amazon you finally finished it Ugh. you had you know because you had you'd left your job you'd finished it you sat down to to write it what do they say put your ass where your heart is what? so yeah i think it's like the art of war and he said like oh. put your ass where your heart is or something like that how did it feel to finish the book it was kind of like that competitive mindset of mine mm. was just like check mark. I did it. It's mm. it was a bucket list item. I was very proud. Yeah. And to hear like coworkers and other adults that weren't my parents tell me like you should be proud of this was some validation that I definitely needed because yeah. I was so bashful at first. Like oh I wrote a I wrote a book of poetry and I was like <laughs> shoulders back. It's like I wrote a book of poetry, bitch. <laughs> Like, this is freaking yeah. cool. Like, poetry's <laughs> cool. Did you know that? <laughs> so where do you go from here? What's the next year look like? The next year, oh, gosh, is is focusing on my speaking. Mm-hmm. I really want to get 
uh, fine-tune my speaking career um, and, and to get uh, emotionally bankrupt picked up by a major publisher. <sighs> it's going to be awesome. It's going to happen. I loved it. I think it's awesome. Um, I think, yes, and then you've already heard this. You'd be, like, absolutely proud of it. I know you're working on a sequel, mm -hmm. so I can't wait to, to hear all the dirty poems oh. <laughs> coming from that book. Do you have any last pieces of advice that you would want to share with somebody that are starting to, like, creep into, into the depths of that struggle or somebody that's in the midst of the struggle or somebody just coming out of it? What mm -hmm. could you offer? I would suggest going into a 12-step meeting because you're going to meet, I don't want to say like-minded people, but people who have a similar um, obsession around food as you do. So definitely seek out a recovery group and just really understand what self-forgiveness means to you and understand what acceptance means to you and know that, and this is a quote I really like, is what would you, what would your ninety year old self be proud of of oh, me today? Yeah. And whenever I get really upset or I'm like, oh my gosh, my belly's hanging out. I'm like, you freaking ran five miles yesterday. Like you just did like a headstand today. Like I I just come back to like all of the physicalities my body is capable of, and then I can really practice that gratitude of wow, this this capsule, this little. What do we call it? The the shuttles. Mm -hmm. What are, what do are, I'm trying to like be all woo woo, but my vessel. This is my vessel. That's my vessel. Gotcha. My vessel's incredible. Like this, yeah. I might have not have a six pack, but like that means I don't drink beer, and I'm not gonna like lie about that. Like maybe I don't want a six pack. Maybe I want my beer, and it's really helped me just to see myself as strong rather mm -hmm. than this need to be a certain size. So what? self forgiveness. What has been the best lesson that you've learned about yourself through all of this? Maybe something that surprised you. That people see me um, in a better light than maybe I do, mm -hmm. and that I need to need to give myself some more credit mm -hmm. and and more grace. Um, a lot of people, when I was really sick in Korea, and and in the ships, at everywhere in life. When I would started to come out, like, hey, I have a really severe mm -hmm. eating disorder, the response was, what? How? Like, you're so confident. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't see myself as confident. I just saw myself as, as trying to stay afloat. So I think I realized that I have a lot of power in what I have to say and that this has given me a purpose of what I want to do for the rest of my life. And I find it to be very... Um, special and rewarding for me to realize that at 26 because I know a lot of people mm -hmm. even at 36 are asking that question um so I'm grateful huh. well I'm grateful you're here <laughs> me too and we yeah. talked yay <laughs> thanks for coming on Woo. high five yeah